<laughs> yeah. They're, they're just in a uh, autumn spring relationship and uh, they were doing a like role play. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you stop at pancake dough. It's tomato soup. Potatoes. Does she care for almonds? And the apples. One of those next. Chocolate lava cake is not just undercooked chocolate cake. Lemon pepper wet? Put your sister's meat back. I don't want it. Cigarettes and coffee, man. That's a combination. Dan, what did we watch this week? This time we watched Tom Popo, which is a Japanese comedy, I think from the 80s. Yeah, it was released, I think, in 86, made 85. Yeah, and it's uh, right up our alley in terms of food movies, but it is weird as hell. <laughs> There's a like cultural sense of humor that is not standard. Uh, in American films that I think maybe it plays better to a Japanese audience or an 80s audience. But it was odd. It was very, very odd and very big. Like everybody was at a 10 the whole time. Yeah. And I think that that's like where the comedy portion comes from. (laughs) But like at the same time, there were certain scenes that I was very shocked that I was like, "Mm, I don't know if I feel this is a comedy film. Basically what the film is, is the story of this woman trying to perfect a ramen recipe so she can make her dead husband's ramen business as successful as possible. She never learned how to make ramen like him. And it's a very male dominated part of the restaurant world because of how much work in terms of physical strength goes into cooking the food. But interspersed in all of it, there are these little vignettes that are kind of tangential, like little stories about experiences in life revolving around food and some of them are comedic some of them are straight up bizarre and some of them are pretty disturbing so yeah it felt it felt a little bit like a variety show like my python's flying circus a little bit yeah where it would just stop the story about the woman in her ramen shop and transition to like weird Japanese businessmen having dinner and the culture around ordering the same thing as the boss. And so everybody table has to order the same thing. And then the one upstart dude who orders like way off menu and upsets everybody for some weird reason, even though what he had to eat sounded like a way better meal. Oh, I interpreted it in a slightly different way that vignette. Okay. The way that I saw it was that like, And I'm not sure for how long um, French cuisine has been represented in Japan, but I do know that in the 80s, 70s and 80s, French cuisine was really what was considered to be the best cuisine in the world. Mm -hmm. And so maybe these business people weren't really sure of what they wanted. So everyone was ordering the same thing. Sol Meunier consomme and a Heineken beer and then the one guy who you think is like maybe a, a, an underling or assistant because he's like 
abused at first in the scene orders something completely different, but he ordered something that's not like the equivalent of like a hamburger and fries, but for fine French food, you know, so Meunier is pretty accessible and he's like, bring it on. I want all of this. Oh, and can I have a white burgundy, a bottle of white burgundy, please. (laughs) And I thought that the red faces was just everybody being embarrassed because he actually understood French food in a way that they didn't. Oh, okay. Maybe. But I could be wrong. Maybe. Uh, I mean, they weren't sticking like, it wasn't like a traditional Japanese meal that the others were having, where it's like, we're good, we're good sort of businessmen and patriots, and we're, we're following these sort of pre-established rules. So maybe my read was way off. I just, I felt like he was like somebody's kid, because he was like also significantly younger than anybody else at the table, um, and had that kind of like, 90s toy commercial like cool dude attitude that he was sort of presenting where everybody else was like very proper and uh, buttoned down kind of business type demeanor to them yeah i i don't know it was weird so, it didn't make any sense it didn't connect to i mean it, it made sense within itself or whatever it had made no connection to the main story there were a couple of things like that there was so like the film opens with this gangster coming into a movie theater and all of his minions laying out a table in front of like he sits in the front row and then they bring in a table and like set up a meal for him. And the rest of the audience is just kind of waiting and watching as this happens. And then he goes on this monologue about how much he loves the movies. And He's loves- breaking the fourth wall hard. <laughs> Yeah. I thought that, that that was like a special introduction that they filmed for the theatrical releases, like the equivalent of the M&Ms now saying like, sure. don't text in the theater. Yeah, maybe, maybe because it, en- it ends with him threatening the life of a dude who's eating a bag of chips and the crinkling of the bag is drawing too much attention, uh, which, you know, I appreciate people aggressively telling others to shut the fuck up during a movie, but um, (laughs) maybe threatening his life was a little much. Also, it seems a little hypocritical because he just laid out like a a proper dining experience for him and his girlfriend and everybody had to wait while he did that. It was a little odd. Uh, But the main thing, there was a big setup in the scene where he's talking about his love for movies and how like when you die, your life flashes before your eyes. That's like the last movie you're ever going to see. And he hates the idea that somebody might like cry and wail and lament at his death because it'll distract him from seeing his last movie. And then we, that's another vignette later is him getting shot in the street and his girlfriend starting to cry and lament that he's bleeding to death. And then uh, he like smiles. He's like, my last movie's about to begin. And I, I, none of it, it wasn't particularly funny. I didn't they never show who shot him. Yeah, I was that was the thing that I I was the most curious about was who shot the character. Um but like going back to what you were saying before about how the film is structured when I was watching it like this is another film that I had never watched before and I'd heard a lot about it and it being considered um a ramen western kind of like a play on the idea of a spaghetti western, right? Right. And so I I was kind of shocked going into it and it not being a straight 
parody of a Western, but yeah. it was like this weird thing where it was like, okay, so if a, a version of like Shane with a little bit of Rocky inside with a touch of Kentucky, Kentucky fried movie, if it was directed by Mel Brooks and <laughs> said if if Mel Brooks was a Japanese guy that was writing and directing it, it had like all of these different elements that were that felt very disparate. Um, but it made it difficult at the time I was watching it to wrap my head around it because I found myself a lot more interested in the primary storyline. Yeah. And I don't know if like how you want to attack this in terms of like talking about that storyline and then the vignettes or the vignettes in that storyline, but like, or just, yeah, stream of consciousness yeah. kind of thing. I mean, I think it seems like, I think that the primary storyline is the only like interesting, coherent bit. All of the vignettes felt uh, out of place, disconnected, and uh, they might have been fine in little moments. Like I like the one where the old guy has a toothache and gets it fixed so he can have some ice cream. And then it's all just a setup for him, like giving a little kid who's not supposed to eat sugar his first ice cream. Like that was cute. I Okay, so... There, there was one aspect of that vignette that was interesting to me because much like the the part in the beginning, when the, the in the very intro, the man in the white suit, mm. he um, and he's he's being served with his girlfriend in a theater. I was like, oh, I wonder if this was actually something that ever took place in Japan of having like a fine dining meal or if someone was a gangster to be able to bring that in because the way that he dressed kind of read 1940s to me and I wasn't sure if like yeah what what time what's like era we're occupying space in but um yeah it felt uh, sorry it felt a little odd that like he wasn't like a yakuza or it didn't feel like that it felt like a sort of outsider's perspective on a 1930s American gangster and he was sort of decked out like that and behaving like that. I have, a, I don't actually know that much about Japanese history for that period of time. And so I don't know like what fashion was sort of commonly associated with uh, organized crime. For them. Right. It, just, it didn't feel like any representation of Yakuza or whatever that I've seen. And then like on when the, the the man in the vignette who had um, like gangrene in his mouth or something like that from what they were saying when they popped the pustule like so when he was on the train he he started being served on a white linen table in the train car with this woman who had like steamer plates and dumplings and stuff and I was like oh is that a part of the commute. I will say that that vignette actually did there there was a part so at the at, after he got treated one of the nurses that was helping out with the surgery just suddenly started like moving back and forth and posing kind of seductively for no reason which I did think was funny but when he like had the ice cream and handed it to the kid I was like this is, it was like deeply unsettling for me for a stranger to give yeah. like 
melted ice cream that he had just been mouthing to another human yeah. being and specifically a child. Like, I, and I don't know if that's because or like some of, random child, he doesn't know yeah. the parents that are just like in a park and this kid is just there. The age differential or like giving him something that the kid couldn't have or um, just like in this time of COVID, you know, like seeing people eat out of each other's bowls that are complete strangers yeah. were, was a little bit unsettling to me. I also, but I, I enjoyed the vignette of the, the, like when, when in the main storyline, they go to visit the ramen sensei mm. and then the, one of the people that's living in, in that group outdoors, like takes the kid in t- and sneaks him into the kitchen. Yeah. Tom Popo's kid into the kitchen and then makes him uh, like a rice omelet. Yeah. And I found out that the actor that played that, that man was um, actually like he had a children's show in Japan that ran for like decades. And he was kind of, his popularity was kind of on the level of like how people would know Sesame street in the U S and he, his character had like magical powers and could learn how to do whatever he wanted to. So I thought that that was cute. Yeah. I, I was having a hard time because the setup for that, there was, uh, and maybe this is just me being too serious, taking it too seriously, or whatever. But they, I go to this group of uh, people who are living on the streets in sort of like central central park in town, and they turn out to be sort of gourmets in their diet or whatever, where they're like dumpster diving and finding food and and making these insanely decadent meals from scrounged food or food that they could find that was discarded by the rest of society or whatever. And so he is an unhoused person who is leading the boy into this kitchen that they just like walk into from off the streets and they're like sneakily making the, he's teaching a kid how to make this sort of French omelet over rice. It felt a little bit like it was the magical hobo in the same way that like Stephen King always has like the magical Negro in all of his stories it's like, oh, these people I, don't really I, exist. That's the thing. Like, I didn't see that guy as that character. I felt like the ramen sensei was that he, character. Yeah, the one but that only, in that, only in that, like, section. Like, the rest of the movie, when he joins sort of Team Tom Popo uh, in the main story, he was just like a dude who had experience as a chef. Yeah, but he chose to live on the streets. Right. And he has this magical kind of understanding of the broth. Also, he's the, I, I'm pretty sure it's the same actor that plays the sensei in the vignette where Ken Watanabe is reading, who plays Gun. Gun is reading a book about how to appreciate ramen. And then Ken Watanabe is also playing the char- character that's learning how to appreciate ramen. And the ramen sensei is the same one that's in the actual storyline. Right. Okay. Teaching him like this ritual about how to enjoy ramen. But I can, I, I understand. I, I mean, the whole, the whole group of people 
that were without a home um, in those scenes took on that kind of quality um, right. there, that you're yeah, talking there, about. There was like a, there's this like underground mystical society of unhoused people living in the park and really they had like the right attitude or the right perspective on life and they were able to cook these amazing meals and li- actually life living in the park with them might bring more joy than living in corporate Japan. And that felt a little, a little odd. Yeah, I mean, it is a problematic depiction. And I'm not saying that it being uh, part of uh, storytelling in the 80s makes it better. But I think considering how materialistic cultures were it, like around the world in the 80s, that the fact that the movie even acknowledged that there were people that sure. were unhomed was something, even if it does take this kind of, you know, heightened over the top quality, especially since every other vignette was kind of like that too. You know, it had no, yeah. there was no necessarily sensitivity put into the extremes. Like I'm thinking about the vignette where like the, the guy is, um, there's like some kind of double cross that happens at a Chinese restaurant. And as they're like a cop arrested one of the con men in the scene, he's run into by a man who is running home to find his dying wife in a room with a a doctor, a nurse and all of the children sitting around her. And she's like on her last breath. And then he basically screams at her that he can't, she can't (laughs) die and she can't leave him and shakes her repeatedly. And then is like, go make me a meal. Like that's supposed to like make me dinner. Like that's supposed to until he screams, go cook dinner. And and that revives her. And she is able to stay alive for like, I don't know, five minutes more to make fried rice for the family. And then she dies at the table and like, he doesn't let his kids mourn or cry because he's like, this is your mom's last meal. Eat it while it's hot. Yeah. It's like, so it's like incredibly insensitive, (laughs) but it is, it's, it's really, I don't know. It's, it's weird to me seeing this movie and then um, finding out a little bit more about its past. Like, it was such um, a unique film at the time. It still is, but in um, Japanese cinema, it was like breaking a lot of rules of what film and comedy was there. And sure. it it really did better, a lot better in French and American and international markets. And like it had a cult following. Like they under there were certain cultural references and. Po- like senses of humor that international audiences got more than Japanese audiences. Yeah, that makes and, sense. And um, I, I was uh, watching an interview with the lead actress, who is also the director's wife, and she brought all of those those points up. And like, also, it's it it's very interesting how. Tom Popo has had the film has had like such a significant resonance with chefs and chefs becoming yeah. interested and in falling in love with ramen. Yeah. Well, it, it also doesn't, it does feel, and I, I don't actually know how to cook ramen, but it does feel like 
uh, it portrays in kind of explicit detail the steps to making good ramen as a part of the story in a way that like most movies would just gloss over. Um, mm. But they, they do almost like beat for beat give you a, a recipe on how to how to make it. And like Tom Popo's journey to being a good ramen chef is wacky and heightened. And there's like weird Rocky montages that make no sense. But uh, it also does sort of take her through like what it takes for a good ramen shop to make good ramen. And like, what are the dimensions of the counter that work and don't work and how to set yeah. up her kitchen correctly. And then, you know, how long to boil the broth and what elements to include. And so I could see where like the, uh, detail oriented nature of how far they took things, but still being comedic about it would appeal to somebody who's sort of professionally a chef. Yeah. I th- and yeah, I think that y- that idea of like finding something and perfecting it and then also yeah. like learning, like d- the little, like the learning and sp- spying on people and learning from other people and also like discovering what your own style is and how, how you want to make the food, like to have the base broth and a taste that you, you like to make the noodles slurp in a certain way yeah. to have the right chewiness to the noodles. And like ha- also to be able to read a customer, like all of those things in the, the quest and pursuit of perfection is like, yeah, I think having worked in restaurants, like there are, you, you are trained to do some of that, but maybe not all of that. And I think the most difficult part is like, once you're set up with all of these tools and these basic things to, to improvise for yourself. Sure. The scene where uh, Tom Popo is talking to Goro and, it's after she's had her uh, pretty woman makeover scene <laughs> and uh, she's like suddenly she's wearing like this big like 80s big shoulder pad dress yeah. that's black with red polka dots and they go out to eat and um, and she says to him like you know some people they it, I'm paraphrasing some people they um, work hot hard and focus on climbing the ladder and some people don't realize they have a ladder Mm. and you made me realize that that I did and um as like I, I mean you could interpret the story of all of these men like teaching her the right way to be make ramen to be slightly problematic but like I guess that that openness to to give as Goro gives in the beginning of the film criticism to her that sets her on a path to try to make ramen better. Like she's also able to take that and use it as motivation and a way to sustain herself and her self-worth and give her a sense of a psychological like independence and a way for her to actually make a living and a good living for her and her son. Um, yeah. And I felt like the movie was going to, in that scene, turn into like a romance and they were going to, while it was going on, 
it felt like that was the moment where they first realized that they were into each other, but it didn't happen. And I'm glad that it didn't happen because it was, it was just like a nice mentor mentee thing. And he kind of forced his way into her life, but she never felt like she was bothered by him being in her, like, like being her teacher. I don't know. It, 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 it went a different way than I thought it was, especially like the previous scene, the, the makeup, pretty woman makeover scene. He's taking a bath and she's like doing his laundry or whatever. And there's this moment where she's picking up his underwear and it feels like there was like a hesitation to touch his underwear. And then she picks it up and it felt like a weirdly like hint at intimacy that was developing, <laughs> but it, it never went anywhere. And I'm, I was worried that that was going to be like a thing. Well, I I found that scene to be a little bit funny because of um, the fact that after their dinner, they run in, they run through the rain back into the restaurant and up to her house. He, he, she draws him a bath and like, I was like fascinated with that bathtub. I've never been to Japan, <laughs> but like it was, it was something that was very high up and you freely like let water splash over the side. Yeah. Um, but in that, as he's bathing, I, when he picked up the brush, I was like, don't smell her hairbrush. And then he did. <laughs> and then he used it on his wet hair and put his, like, hat that he wears all the time on top of his hair. Yeah. Like, that hat has got to be filled with stanky sweat and yeah. oil. And then, and then he looks over to one of the, like, bathroom rungs and her bra and, like, these frilly panties are, like, yeah. pinned to it to dry out. And, like, that was clearly, like, to me, seems like a hint at, like, sexuality, right? Like, yeah. those, that's an appealing thing to see and indicates that intimacy. But then when she is taking out clothes that he could change into and picks up his stuff... There's like at the the bottom of the pile are these like soaked, yeah. possibly stretched out tidy whities, and it's like I the hesitation for me would be to not want to touch those things. Right. Like so, like it was funny to me in that moment that like you know women's underwear is completely sexualized and seen as something that's like. I don't know, makes a woman more desirable, but like men's underwear, like for the most part. I'd, I, th yeah. yeah, there have not been developments to make it more sexy <laughs> until like, you know, queer spaces became more mainstream. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I, I read, I guess by the time that we get to the underwear, I was, I, you know, it was, I thought it was creepy that he smelled her hairbrush and the way they shot her underwear hanging out to dry. Um, was sexualized and so the the only thing that made me think that there was something on her end was just the way that she picked up his underwear there was some like like yeah you first read the, the hesitancy to do it but then she does it in this really delicate like the, her hand motion is really delicate and it just it felt like a weird threshold being crossed that was going to lead to further intimacy but then none of that happens. They they talk at dinner and they tell each other their sort of horrible backstories. But then the the relationship continues as it was, just with a kind of deeper understanding of who each other are, without ever going further. And I was 
I guess feeling a lot of like, oh, please don't go here. Please don't go here. And so I was relieved that they didn't. I think the biggest thing for me uh, in terms of that was that, I mean, first of all, I, I knew that it was described as a ramen Western. So I knew like sure. either the guy at the end has to, the lead male character either has to die or leave town. Right. So, um, but the, the other thing was in the last scene where she has set up her shop and it's the first day opening after it's been revamped and all of the recipes have been perfected and each of her mentors sidles out the door as more and more people come in and Goro is the last one and they have ex- an extended eye contact scene on par with one of the five billion endings of Return of the King. But in the, <laughs> in the um, in that moment, there is a a point where she looks down and I thought like, oh, well, she's clearly no- knows he's going to leave. And then he walks out the door. She acts a little bit concerned, but then immediately turns to the next customer. And when he comes out and lights a cigarette, I was worried she was going to run out after him. Mm. And I was, I was like really, really pleased when that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, but there was also part of me that was like, and just in the premise, I was like, girl, Tampopo, why are you like asking? I mean, this is not me hating on truckers, but I was like, why are you asking a trucker how to make ramen? Like, yeah. why wouldn't you? I mean, I guess it worked out in her favor, but it, it was like not the most logical choice. But I guess in the absence of being able to have a cowboy ride into town, <laughs> like um, in, in Tokyo. That, <laughs> that yeah, no, it, I mean, in terms of it being like a Western, that that's uh, a good choice. But in yeah. terms of learning how to cook good ramen, like what the fuck is a trucker? Doing <laughs> I, I have to say in when it opened up and the movie wasn't directly about the like gangster that was set up yeah. in the first, first opening thing, I was confused. Then, then when there was an immediate vignette in the middle of the guy reading the book in the truck, I was also confused again. And then I was like, yeah. wait, is that Ken Watanabe? And <laughs> I was like so excited to see a young Ken Watanabe. Yeah. And uh, he, the other, like, and and then I, I love the fact that at the end of the day, his contribution was that him and five of his friends who like were dressed like they were out of kind of uh, like, like, I don't know. They looked like they could have been dressed by whoever dressed the extras extras in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film. (laughs) But um, like they, they were the ones that were giving her the makeover. Right. Right. (laughs) I was (laughs) how did this happen? Yeah. Another uh, inappropriate expert scenario. <laughs> You're going to the wrong person for this job. I, I, um, and the last scene where he's driving away, and this probably wasn't what they intended, but I started thinking about that first scene where, where he's in the, where Guro's in the truck, uh, and his assistant driver is reading this story about ramen to him and they're getting hungry. 
it felt to me like having those sort of bookend the story made a read of the film possible where the entire events with Tom Popo was just Guru kind of daydreaming about this like alternate life because he, you know, he reveals when they have dinner that he's this like sad sort of lonely dude. His family left him because he was neglectful um, and like gone all the time. And so his wife uh, took his kids and ran away. And so he's alone and all he does is, is be a trucker. Uh, and he's, maybe projecting meaning to his life by inventing Tom Popo as a character that he would meet and train to be a good ramen chef and sort of have this adventure with. And then at the end, when he's driving out of town, it's like he's had this daydream or whatever, and he feels a little happier because he's he's given his life this kind of waking fantasy to ponder for a bit. I'm sure that's not what the filmmakers actually meant by it, but it felt like a movie that was wacky enough that maybe yeah, Goro was the only real character and everybody else was just invented for his fantastic ruminations. So so do you think that like all of that extra stuff would have been in the book or No, I think I think the it was, you know, the book was sort of the portal or gateway into it, right? Like he was imagining what was being read to him. And then he kind of spun off into his own fantasy at some point about them stopping to eat and meeting Tom Popo and taking her on her journey. Oh, um, no, I think Tom yeah. Popo is real. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I fully admit that that feels like a unintended read of the film, but, uh, there was just enough room for me to kind of like ponder. Maybe, maybe it was just a sort of lonely dude who lost his family trying to like fill his life. Yeah. I mean, the, the interview that I watched with the lead actress um, who played Tom Popo was really interesting to me mm. because she talked about how at the time, in Japanese cinema, women didn't have much agency. Yeah. And her interpretation of the character, which presumably was also her husband who directed the film and wrote it, his interpretation of it was that Tempopo was a person that through her character inspired and her generosity inspired other people to want to help her. And so she, she was able to create this world for herself out of, out of her character and kindness and willingness to learn mm -hmm. and strength. Um, and even though the story is like framed from the like beginning and ending with Goro coming into and then leaving town. I, I like, I like the idea more that it's Tam Popo's story. Yeah. I mean, she's the title character and everything is about sort of her becoming mediocre ramen shop to the best ramen shop in Tokyo or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so that makes sense. I, I've, I feel very bad. I should have said this at the top because I was meaning to, 
was that um, I apologize for my lack of knowledge in um, Japanese pronunciation. Mm. I might not pronounce people's names the correct way, and I, I apologize for that. The actor who played the man in the white suit, I've seen him in one movie before this, which was released after it. It's called Shall We Dance? Yeah. Which is a movie. Yeah. And then I think he, I didn't, I never saw it, but I think most American, Americans would recognize him from, I think he was in Babel. Oh, okay. Um, his scenes I found to be very upsetting. Yeah. Um, especially the scene with the young girl feeding him an oyster and yeah. then licking blood off his lips. Yeah, they. Uh, I thought it was cool to see the fisherwomen who were doing the oyster collecting, but it seemed like she was way too young for her to be licking his the blood off of him like that. And like the sexual tension between them when she when he was buying the oyster felt completely inappropriate. Yeah, at the time I didn't know if like even though it was a scene that happened directly after his like his main sex food scene with his girlfriend, mm. um I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be like the story of like how the two of them met each other in the past. Was that I thought her? that, that was, were both I, of those? Well, I'm not sure. I thought that there was there was a world in which that was the introduction story through those two characters. And like he opened her up to this like sadomastic masochistic sexual expression of food, gastronomy and sex. Yeah. Like like the age differential in that scene was very upsetting. Although I did enjoy seeing the oyster divers. And then in the original sex scene, I think maybe it's because of my egg allergy. <laughs> um, the, distributing the egg back and forth and back and forth yeah, no, in each was, other's mouths. It was gross even to people who like eggs. And yeah. um, like, I don't want to kink shame that being like here to say that, but there's also a scene in which he fills like a bowl. Yeah full of of cognac and then puts live shrimp in it and then puts it on her upper stomach or pubic area and i guess she gets off because the shrimp are drowning and flapping around in the cognac but crustacean shells are really sharp and alcohol <laughs> stings when it gets into wounds and it burns on mucus membranes. Yeah. So it was, I was like, uh, yeah. Yeah. That was, that was really upsetting. Um, also just like human <laughs> sexual pleasure being derived from torture of live animals. It's super fucked yeah. up. Um, so I, yeah. Yes, I I will say as a disclaimer, I'm for sex positive. Uh, <laughs> anyone anyone with kinks, it's cool. I I'm as long as consent is involved, I'm fine with it. Sure, yeah. I'm pretty sure those shrimp didn't consent to be drowned on somebody's uh, yeah. body. Yeah, but um, <laughs> well, the egg, like the egg thing, fine if you want to 
swap eggs back and forth uh, or the yolks of an egg back and forth as like sort of foreplay or whatever. You do you. No, she like straight up came. That's what that end was. <laughs> but, but well, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I just, they, they were doing lots of stuff. Like there was a point where they were dribbling honey into like her mouth was above his mouth and she was pouring honey across her mouth so that it would fall into his and doing all kinds of stuff. Fine. Whatever. Um, I mean, wasting food is a little weird, but uh, if that's a part of your a healthy hey, listen, sexual relationship, great. If American you, Psycho was just about weird sex and wasting food, <laughs> in terms of its <laughs> decadent <laughs> exploration of consumerism and, yeah. and heteronormative in 80s, then I would be fine with it. Sure. But uh, yeah. I also found... The the woman who ran through the grocery store poking into things is being disturbing too. <laughs> yeah, but the the woman who was on set that was hired to do all of the the food, well, a majority of the food. She was talking about how like the oyster in the scene represented the virginity of the girl, and the peach that the old woman was poking like was supposed to be like an old woman's bottom. And so like the, the goal of the director was to show how like the human form can be represented in food and how food and sex and life and death all connect with each other. Okay. And also something that was interesting that she, she was talking about was like at the time, I guess like, you know, this is mid eighties. Um, at least in Japan, like any kind of food that would be in a film would be the responsibility of the props department. They wouldn't hire someone that was professionally educated in food to actually produce anything. She said she was told she made over 600 bowls of ramen during the course of the film. If the point was to focus on the noodles, then like it would have to be made a certain way. If the point was to focus on the broth, then, and she had to make all different kinds of broth to indicate how the quality of them. So that was, that was kind of fascinating. In, in, in respect to the food, they did a really good job of making it look appealing. And I think the, the execution between her and the cinematographer worked really, really well. And you could track kind of logically just from the visuals, like what was going on with the ramen. Like when they were talking about bad ramen, what made it bad? You could see it, mm. and it made sense. Just like even if you turn off the dialogue, you you could s- sort of understand her improvement, her journey over the course of the film, or like when when they rescue that wealthy man who's choking, and he takes them to his house. Like he's got a private chef, and he serves them ramen with clear broth. Like it looked it looked amazing, but it it, <laughs> it was like sufficiently distinct, yeah, and unique. I thought you were going to start talking about the turtle soup because no. Yeah. The fact that they killed the turtle on screen was very upsetting. Yes. As soon as he said turtle soup, I was like, oh, God. Yeah, um, that I think I may have blocked that because that was horrifying. But the the most interesting bowl of ramen, I think, to me, or like the most visually appealing bowl of ramen in the film was that clear broth ramen that uh, his chef served to them. Mm. I did have a, a bit of a hard time with the film. Generally, I do have 
I'm not diagnosed or whatever, but I think I probably have misophonia, which is like a... <laughs> oh my God, I've totally... Condition. I didn't even think of that because there's so much slurping in the <laughs> yeah. film. So there's, it's, a, it's a thing where you're like sort of viscerally disgusted by the sound of other people eating. And Which makes it amazing that he chose this podcast as the topic for, you know, like, you know, yeah. it's like, hey, Becky, do you want to do a podcast together? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm normally fine, like, if I'm not eating, if I'm not, like, in that mind space of, of time to consume, mm. watching it in movies or whatever, but, like, listening to a podcast where somebody, like, food podcasts where people eat as part of the podcast, I have a hard time with just because of the proximity of the mic to their mouth. When mm. they're like, because they have, you know, it's audio is the only tool they have to tell the story. And so they have to record in detail them eating. And it just, it always sets me <laughs> off. And there was so much, there's there's like a, a whole sequence in the early part of the film where they're at this like girls school. Oh, and yeah. Ramen and they're training them to proper etiquette during a meal. And there's this guy who's just like slurping with abandon on his ramen. And it sets off a chain wherever all of the girls in the school start doing it. And it's just like five minutes of people I... slurping ramen and like with explicit detail on the sound of it. It just, I couldn't. I found that scene really interesting because it took place after the, um, the French vignette. And there was a woman there that was teaching all of these women who looked like they were probably in their twenties, how to eat, italian pasta the proper way hmm. and it, it was interesting because i remember my grandma once like trying to teach me the proper way to eat pasta and it involved a fork and spoon and i was like ah, <laughs> like i was not appreciative <laughs> so of being told work. that i was eating pasta the wrong way yeah um and it's it was interesting to me like having hearing that woman say you know like making noise is not accepted internationally if you eat presumably Italian food and other food as well. But like then a man, a white man that's sitting in the corner of the restaurant, who's presumably like a tourist is slurping these noodles down. I have to say if anyone ha is watching the film and they want to know a little bit more about it, if you have the criterion collection channel, mm. there's a lot of making of and yeah. discussions on like shorts on their streaming service because I'm, I'm not well steeped in ramen or ramen culture because of my food allergies. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> the one of they, they interviewed chefs about like what makes a perfect bowl of ramen. And they said like, um, like slurp ability, like the, part of what makes ramen enjoyable is slurping. And they were talking about how that is a very Japanese kind of experience. Yeah. And, you know, there one man who ran a uh, ramen shop in Japan and now has one in New York was talking about how he would have customers that would come in for a bowl of ramen in Tokyo and they would sit down and leave four minutes later. And he would be like scared that they didn't like the food and walked out. But really what had happened was they ate the whole bowl of ramen in four minutes. And that's not necessarily like atypical. Like ramen is a delicious comfort food, but it's like an accessible and cheap food to buy. Uh, sure. So there aren't really like these like in the way in the opening scene where the guy was talk, the sensei is talking to 
the Ken Watanabe character in the book about what's the right way to eat ramen. There is no right way to eat ramen, they were saying. And that, um, like, so to eat it as fast as possible, in some situations that makes sense because a lot of people were talking about how it's a food that you get when you're, like, when it's late night, when you've been drinking, when you just, like, need something really quick. But, like, Italy is where the slow food movement started. So not not just in terms of, like, sourcing stuff locally. It's, like, about sitting down and enjoying your meal and... While Italians have a bountiful hunger, like if you ate pasta like that, yeah, in, in the extreme manner that they portrayed all of the women in that one white man doing it, <laughs> it would be very alarming. And also because of the way that Italian pasta is made, you wouldn't be joy- enjoying the full ex- experience of the pasta to eat it that way as you would enjoy the full experience of eating ramen that way, of the slurpability. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily the most important thing with Italian pasta. Yeah, and I, I feel like sometimes my visceral reactions to this, those kinds of sounds uh, put me in weird spots culturally where like it is sort of standard like when you're eating with chopsticks – uh, something like noodles and ramen that like slurping is the effective way to do it or like the sort of traditional way to do it and it freaks me the fuck out and <laughs> I, I don't intend to be like rude to anybody about it but uh, my, my reaction to that is not at all under my control and you were you know you're saying that they these guys in this ramen shop would finish a bowl of ramen in four minutes I can't even imagine that. I ordered ramen when I watched Tampopo, and mm-hmm. uh, it took me like forty minutes to get finished the bowl. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, you you were doing it in the way that the old man in the beginning talked about. I mean, it. I wasn't like patting my uh, pork belly or like massaging, the apologizing or it for <laughs> yeah. neglecting it for a little while. Yeah. I did. I did sort of think about that scene when I started to eat and I was like, there's no, like this guy's insane. This level of particularity doesn't make any damn sense, but it does take me a while to eat ramen because I'm not willing to <laughs> like put others through the same pain that I feel. So I don't slurp. Um, so if you slurped yourself, would you freak yourself out? No. For whatever okay. reason, it doesn't apply to myself. And that makes sense. But if I'm in that sort of headspace of like it's my time to eat and somebody else at the table. like you, I remember You don't up, like wet food noises. Yeah. I, I remember growing up having a really hard time. My grandfather uh, lived with us a few months out of the year because my mom works at a hospital. She works at the VA and he's a vet. He was a vet. Having somebody on the inside when you're seeking medical care can get you much better medical care. And so he would come and stay with us for a couple of months a year every time he had to like do his major checkups or like whatever. Mm. So we would have lots of dinners with him um, and he was an open mouth chewer. <laughs> and I lo- you know, I love I loved him. I uh, love my family, but it was very difficult to there was a lot of like repressed and sort of trembling at the table, trying to control my, mm. my disgust uh, through those meals. Oh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. 
I don't, I, I don't know. I, I've never had a complete problem with that. Maybe like uh, sure. overly loud yeah. lip smacking if my brother was doing it when we were growing up together, just because, you know, your sibling is annoying <laughs> to, to you. Um, well, also, that sounds like maybe that was the goal. It wasn't like he was just enjoying oh. his food, but like maybe he was trying yeah. to be a, a pesky, I don't know. pesky older brother. I'm I'm sure that was sometimes the inspiration, but other times I'm sure like he was not even aware that I was in the room. Um, <laughs> but the that that ramen scene um, was of um, that like perfect ramen with the old man teaching like the proper way to eat it. It was really it was interesting to me after the fact taking that into consideration, knowing that knowing through the interviews that I watched that ramen, there wasn't any certain way to eat ramen right yeah. or, or make ramen right. Um, that ramen, uh, one of, one of the Japanese um, chefs that was interviewed was saying, as long as you have good broth and good noodles, you have, you can, that's enough for it to be a delicious ramen. Mm -hmm. And then you have the sauce and everything on top is extra in terms of how you, you, you want to present it. But really at the end of the day, the, the most important things are the, the broth and the noodles and that. Um, it used to be that chicken broth, you use chicken broth with vegetables and, and boiled the pork bones in it and the vegetables would taper some of the unctuousness of the pork um, and then the sauce that was at the bottom that fills up throughout the broth with the ramen that was the way that you really expressed yourself beyond the toppings like the the way that that teacher the sensei is is talking about how to eat ramen properly is all of just it's it's the he's a mouthpiece for the director's voice in that moment like talking the director yeah. is saying how he thinks the best way to enjoy ramen is. And it's, uh, it, it was interesting to um, listening to essentially who I, I guess would be called at this point, like that job would be called a food stylist or, yeah. and, or a food researcher. She was saying that like this movie came out just at a time where ramen was slightly raising, rising in terms of popularity, but, because it was such a, a humble food, it wasn't something that was, you know, really thought about that that seriously or thought about in the way that people now try to deconstruct like mother sauces and certain sure. broths. And that yeah. for him, it was like an ode to the Tokyo ramen that he grew up with pre-World War II ramen and yeah. what that was and what the proper version of that was. And and because you know, Tom Popo at her heart was kind of like an old fashioned woman, he, she was, uh, the actress was saying that like there, there was this very big nostalgic element. So it was interesting to me that it was like nostalgia for pre-World War II food through the lens of a, like, a, like a, a Western story structure overarching story stru structure set in the eighties in Tokyo. <laughs> it, it's like very fascinating. Um, but again, like it's something that like, as I talk about it, looking back on it, 
because I finished I finished the movie today. Mm-hmm. Um, it I think I I. Like, I like it intellectually, but at the time as I was watching it, it was pretty hard for me to to get through because I guess sure. I, while I was watching it, I didn't know where it was going, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but I always felt off kilter and not knowing which story was was the main one or how it would get back to like a, a a more kind of uh, traditional narrative structure, which I guess is not the point. The point was that interplay between like food, sex, death, um, life, yeah, passion. Um, but yeah, I I was like there were there were a few points where I paused it to check how much time was left, and I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh. How much of this is going to be vignettes and how much is it going to be Tampopo? And then, I don't know, at the end, the very end of the film, like not since The Grapes of Wrath have has there been such a heavy handed breastfeeding scene in a film. <laughs> like, <sighs> I was like, really? I mean, I get it. But at the same time, I don't know. I just just like, please let it just end on Tom Popo, like, and her success. Like, do we have to, like, ham fist this in there? Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, it it, uh, just felt superfluous. Like. Yeah. Like, I don't know. And maybe this is me being too, like, standard and they were doing something that was a little more thoughtful or interesting or whatever. But, like, let him ride off into the sunset. Let her restaurant be a hit. They've trained her how to be this this badass ramen chef, and now her and her son's life is improved, and her restaurant looks all fancy. Yeah, I would have rather had the end with the credits go over her, like just throughout the whole time serving food, or watching yeah. that that contractor Ken run after the truck. For like four <laughs> minutes straight, that would be funny to me. I would enjoy that. Yeah, yeah. It's like the end of Jaws is just Roy Schreider and uh, Richard Dreyfuss just swimming back to shore. No credits, just play over like mm. a four-minute shot of them just like swimming to shore and then collapsing on the beach. So you could do a thing like that, but like a comedy version where he's just running down the street. <laughs> <laughs> I. I I I think the last time I watched that movie was like I think I was younger. I was like either 10 or younger. Mm. It's been so long since I've seen it and it was probably not the best idea for my parents to allow me to watch that before the age of 10. <laughs> but <laughs> I got to say that that is one of my and maybe we've talked about this before but uh I have memories of that movie before I have memories of conscious time. Oh, yeah, you did mention that. And it, it is so, like, perfectly crafted mm. as a thing. I think it's masterful. I, I know you've, you've expressed some, like, issues with the sort of pacing and structure of the, the first half. Which is interesting, as considering I just talked about how I haven't seen it <laughs> in over 20 years. Well, I mean, you, you, you know, you mentioned that it has, like, slow start. And it does take a while to get to where it's yeah. going but it's all like also it like the idea of like i i don't know it's very funny to me when like 
when the solution to a problem is like, don't go in the water. Why, <laughs> why is this happening? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, uh, yeah, I, you know, even, even beach towns have like a little bit of stuff other than just the water to go to. I mean, they must have some good taffy yeah, shops. It was, or, it was the 4th of July. Everybody wants oh, to. You know, or they have their own version of the Wonder Wharf. <laughs> yeah, um, that was that was a good Bob's Burgers episode where t- Teddy was in the the version like sequelized version the deepening, of deepening three deepening. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've, we got to be careful. I've, this podcast is becoming a, a Bob's, Bob's Burgers Burger. reference podcast. <laughs> That's true, but Bob's Burgers references so much in culture. It Actually, does. I'm like kind of surprised there hasn't been a Tom Popo thing yet. To be honest, <laughs> yeah, they did. In terms my of neighbor, in terms of it Totoro. being a show about a, a restaurant, um, they don't do a lot of food movies as they're you know they do Jaws, they do the Goonies, they do lots of like big famous movies, but they don't focus specifically on food stuff. Yeah. Unless your theory about, you know, about Big Night was right and Jimmy Pesto <laughs> is Pascal. Maybe. Um, I mean, if, if anybody's listening, uh, I would love for them to do a Big Night episode. And that could be your opportunity to play uh, Mrs. Pesto. <laughs> I love it. I forgot that I said I already agreed to it. I put it out there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Can't you tell I would be a great professional voice artist? <laughs> uh, this is normally your question, but I'm gonna Okay. I'm gonna point at you first. What was your So this is hard because you have a lot of food allergies that are sort yeah. of core elements of ramen, but um, provided you could eat anything from the movie, what would be the thing that you were most into? I so that's interesting, right? Because like the, I thought about it. I mean, looking, looking at those noodles and the food, like it was, I, it was very appealing, but because I don't necessarily have the frame of reference for any kind of ramen before my allergies developed other than top ramen, like I don't, I don't, um, which I, I, guys, I realize it's not real ramen, so calm down. Um, <laughs> I, I guess the thing that was the most appealing to me, actually, when I saw it, even though it was supposed to be, like, s- simple and easy, I was like, I would love to eat that breakfast. The breakfast that she makes, where, where mm. there's, like, she's making rice, and there's, like, little sardines and pickles and miso soup, and yeah. it's... Goro, Gun, and Tampopo, and uh, Tampopo's kid. And basically, they're taking nori and putting um, a rice and maybe some vegetables and pickles or one of the sardines in and just eating that. Like, that looked really comforting to me. And I always, yeah. because, like, breakfast is one of the most difficult meals for me to eat when I go to restaurants because of my egg and gluten allergy. Um, like I, I always like like brunches when you can order a bunch of little things and mix them together and yeah. you can have like different savory elements and kind of eat 
everything as you enjoy, like as you would like to enjoy it. So the simplicity of that. And I was like, that would, that's actually a brilliant breakfast. You get a little bit of everything. Yeah. It's comforting from the rice. It wakes you up from the pickles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, lot of different, uh, completely different flavor. Like you get savory, you get some acid, you get sort of the rice is kind of plain. You're sort of all over the flavor spectrum. It feels like a very well-rounded sort of uh, flavor experience. Yeah. What about you? That, that broth. So I think, you know, I the, the that clear broth ramen looked really, really good. Although there is the one stipulation I will say is if the noodles that they settled on for the slurpability actually made a slide whistle noise. Oh, my God. <laughs> I forgot about that. That's something I really wanted to bring up. That was that scene when they were yeah. they were looking for like the right type of noodles and they tried one and it turned out at the end of every single, every <laughs> single slurp, there was like a sound effect, which you said was a slide whistle. I couldn't figure out what it actually was. Yeah. It, I, yeah think, I think it was a, a slide whistle. It, if, <laughs> if slurping made that noise, I think I'd probably be okay with it. Um, so I, the thought of noodles <laughs> that would <laughs> do that, uh, is, is kind of appealing and maybe it'll get old in like two minutes, but, uh, no, seems that like would be fun. That would be really fun. <laughs> it's interesting. Cause there's so there's all these like, um, new electronic instruments that you hook up to different things. Like people can hold it and then touch each other's bodies and it plays different mm. notes and depending on where you're touching it, or you can like hook up, different vegetables and touch the vegetables to make music so like uh, but i love the idea of someone somehow figuring out how to make broth and noodles sound like different things so you can make a ramen symphony yeah the actress and wife of the director said that her husband always had three principles to his filmmaking he wanted the films to be fun mm -hmm. surprise and movies that anyone could understand okay <laughs> so i just thought it was interesting considering that a lot of it we were probably like what the fuck is going on yeah i had i had a similar experience watching it to what you described where like you sort of feel lost and untethered and uh checking how much time was left was a frequent thing I did really enjoy the food visuals mm. just on a like sort of aesthetic or, uh, or like sensual level, just like seeing all this wonderful food. Sometimes it was disgusting. Like the, the sex scene, uh, there were moments that felt a little off putting or the, um, the old woman squishing the food at the grocery store was kind of like, oh. I was like, I felt like that was like, I, this is me with a minimal understanding of his artwork or films, but they <laughs> seemed Matthew Barney esque. Like, I don't know who he, that is. Oh, he's like this um, visual and I guess performance artist that for a while was married to Bjork, but it, <laughs> it's like he makes art. Like he made this film series called the Krem Master Cycle. And there's a lot of bizarre 
imagery that like sets off people with trichophobia in it and like okay at like he makes giant sculptures out of vaseline and like yeah weird tactile stuff okay it's very upsetting <laughs> i know like i know about him probably solely because of the fact that he had an exhibit at the moma while um I was in college and my brother really liked that, his artwork. Okay. And he bought like this insanely expensive book that was like, and he was like, oh, Becky, you got to see this. And I was like, this is very strange. Anyways, you can look it up and <laughs> see what you think. But the poking of the the peach and the cheese really, I was like, mm. Yeah, I this feels like that. <laughs> I, I at first I thought it was like the grocery store just had bad produce, and she wasn't necessarily <laughs> molesting the peach, but it was just like so ripe that it was just falling apart in her hands. Yeah, but then she she like runs away from the shopkeep, and so it's like okay, there's something going on here, and then he checks the peach and it's fine. Like it's a normal peach. It's like it's like what the fuck is this lady doing? And then like it, what really disturbed me was like the the way she treated the brie. I was like, God damn it, this lady's ruining all the food for all the other customers. Like she needs to get the fuck out. <laughs> well, the other thing that's like interesting to me was because that like you know, um, be, you know, I because it's an island, Japan has to import a lot of produce yeah. and especially something like like brie or dairy, but, um, you know, I've, my friends that have traveled to Japan have told me stories about like, oh, you know, like there are places where you can buy apples for, from Washington for the equivalent of like $30 a piece. Sure. So like, I would imagine a stone fruit, like a peach would be an incredibly expensive piece of fruit. Um, I just think it is, it is very funny, like not, not funny, ha 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 ha, but like interesting that <laughs> the end when he finally caught her and she was poking all the pastries that all he did was take a fly swatter and swat her hand. And that was the end of the story. He was just <laughs> delighted that he swat her hand with a fly swatter. Yeah. No, no, uh, restitution was made for all the molested food. Mm. <laughs> well, that's maybe the fly swatter thing. Maybe that's his kink. Like, just <laughs> <laughs> uh, getting off with some random octogenarian customer. Who knows? Maybe this is a, like something that they set up. You know, like how people like <laughs> meet each other. Yeah, they're they're just in a uh, autumn spring relationship and. Uh, they were doing a like role play. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yikes. 